Welcome to January's edition of Carl Chins Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author Professor Carl Chin honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising they were sinners as well as saints. Welcome to this podcast with me, Carl Chin, and today you can join me on a walk down one of the short streets in the Jewellery Quarter. It's Frederick Street, but though short, it has fascinating associations with our history. We're going to start at the Chamberlain Memorial Clock, at the junction of Vice Street, Warston Lane and Frederick Street, and then we're going to go have a little mooch down the street and come eventually to a superb museum, the Penn Museum. I'm standing right in the art of the jewellery quarter and it's a bright, sunny, blue-skied winter's morning. And I'm looking up at the Chamberlain clock at the junction of Vice Street and Frederick Street with Warston Lane. In front of me is the Big Peg, the eight-storey building that dominates the local skyline. Completed in 1971 as a flatted factory called the Hockley Centre, it now provides office space for Birmingham's entrepreneurs. All around the Big Peg, though, are older buildings and sites of interest. Opposite it, and going along Vice Street and stretching downhill to Ickmill Street, is the Warstone Lane Church of England Cemetery, with its fascinating catacombs. One of those buried there is Major Harry Jem. A lawyer and clerk to the Birmingham Magistrates, he was best known for his sporting and literary interests. A keen sportsman who was involved in cricket, horse riding, athletics and pedestrianism, he played a crucial role in the development of lawn tennis, a role that is underestimated outside the Midlands. In the 1850s, Jem played the game called racket, but he was put off by the need for expensively constructed courts. With his friend, Augurio Pereira, a second-generation Spanish Brummie, Jem drew up rules for a game that they named Pelota and later Lawn Rackets. Their emphasis was on simplicity and athleticism. The first game was played in 1865 in the garden of Pereira's home in Hampton Road, Edgbaston. They later called this game Lawn Tennis. The Church of England Cemetery ends at Pittsford Street, across from which is Keogh Cemetery. This was where Birmingham's nonconformists were buried, and it includes the graves of some of our city's greatest names, such as the preacher George Dawson, the experimental chemist Alfred Bird, whose firm gave notice to its custard powder, and of course, Joseph Chamberlain. The clock tower that I'm looking at, that was named after him, was put up in 1903 to mark his tour of South Africa as colonial secretary in the government. He went there soon after the end of the Second Boer War, between 22nd December 1902 and 25th of February 1903. The clock itself was unveiled during Chamberlain's lifetime in January 1904 by Mary Endicott, his third wife. The column is made of cast iron and was the work of the firm started by Charles Hart. He had an ecclesiastical metalwork business that he transferred from London to Birmingham. The gates, brasses and railings of St Martin's Church were made by his company, as was other brass work locally in civic and public buildings, such as that in the Council House and the Victoria Law Courts. Charles Hart died in 1880. His son, Captain Charles Joseph Hart, took over the business. He founded the Harbour Voluntary Fire Brigade in 1879, and he was an active officer in the 1st Volunteer Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Hart was also prominent in the recruitment campaign for volunteers for the Army in the First World War, and he was a great supporter of the Birmingham School of Art. 
now a local landmark and a symbol of the jury quarter. Back in 1903, when Hart's firm finished the clock's column, it was placed in the middle of Chamberlain's West Birmingham parliamentary constituency, and it was paid for by the constituents in honour of the politician they so esteemed, and also in recognition of his work on behalf of the workers and the gaffers of the jewellery trade. I've walked across the road from Boy Street to the corner of Warston Lane and Frederick Street. I'm still by the clock, and just a few hundred yards from it, in Camden Drive, was the home of Kathleen Dayas. Of course, she is best remembered for her pioneering book recounting her memories of growing up poor in Birmingham. Called Her People, it was published in 1982. Written mostly in a conversational style and with a remarkable recall for detail, Kathleen's reminiscences are not rose-tinted. They bring to the fore hunger, bad housing, overcrowding, insanitary conditions, ill health, the spectre of debt, coldness and scanty clothing. But they also highlight the importance of neighbourliness and kinship networks in the battle against poverty, the vitality of women and the joy that came from sing-songs, the playing of games in the street and hot-picking outings. Nine years after that first book, Kathleen was drawn back to the area where she'd grown up. She walked to many of the places with which she identified, including this spot by the Chamberlain clock. And this is what she wrote. Just a few more yards I walk, and I come to the junction of Warston Lane, Vice Street and Frederick Street, where one of our famous landmarks, Joseph Chamberlain's clock, stood with its ironwork painted dark green and gold, all faded and rusty. It has now been removed to be repaired and have a facelift too, but I'm told it will soon be restored to its original place. As I stand on the corner and look at the empty space, I remember the day my mother told me that when I was 12 months old, she carried me to see that clock, which was erected in 1903, the year I was born, and to hear its chime. Also, I think of the times when many of us kids leaving school at 12 midday would take it in turns to play around that monument and to watch out for the Lodge Road tram making its way up Worston Lane, past the cemetery, round the clock, down Frederick Street, down Newall Hill, and to the town terminus and back again. That ride costs one penny. And in the wake of that tram, that's where we are heading. But only a little way down Frederick Street to the Pen Museum on the corner of Leg Lane. Now that may surprise you. Why is car going to a museum dedicated to pens when it's in the jewellery quarter? And why indeed is there such a museum in the quarter? Well, there is also a museum of the jewellery quarter in the opposite direction, down Vice Street and towards Hockley Hill and Great Hampton Street. That does tell the story of the jewellery trade and its workers, but that's for another day. But it's also important to realise that there were other trades locally. For example, as we've just come down Frederick Street, we've reached Regent Street, and immediately there on the corner is Fatterini's, the famed manufacturer of medals, badges and insignia. Therein lies another fascinating story, for the company was founded by Thomas Fatterini, whose family originated in the Como area of northern Italy. They had connections with barometer makers and established themselves as watchmakers and jewellers in Skipton, North Yorkshire. Later, they moved to Birmingham because of the city's fame for skilled workers. But that's a story for another time as well. So too is that of the silver factory of J.W. Evans, just down Albion Street, which itself is almost opposite Fatterini's. The silver factory was established in 1881, and today it's a museum that brings you to a lost industrial world. Behind the frontage of four terraced houses are the workshops of the firm, which retain their original drop stamps and fly presses. They're packed with thousands of dies for the manufacture of silverware, as well as the whole of the working equipment, stock and records of the business. 
But we haven't got time to find out more, so let's carry on down Frederick Street towards the Penn Museum. All right, mate. Okay, I've come across the road at last to the Penn Museum and come through its gate into the gateway. But before we go inside, I want to tell you about the house that once stood on this site and its bond with Washington Irving, the man hailed as the father of American literature. It's important that we know about this because Irving could never have achieved this eminent position if it had not been for his visits to Birmingham. He was a patriot who had fought against the British in the War of 1812, yet Irving was a man still attracted to the old world. So, three years later, he joined his eldest brother in business in Liverpool. But his hopes of success were dashed. The venture failed. Along with so many others in the Depression that swept the land with the coming of peace after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Dejected, Irving came to Birmingham to stay with his sister Sarah and her husband, Henry Van Wart, a prosperous merchant. Descended from the Dutch settlers who had found in New York as New Amsterdam, Van Wart had met his wife whilst working for Irving and Smith, the mercantile firm of her older brother. After a time in Liverpool, the couple went back to America and then they moved to the West Midlands, settling first on the West Bromwich Road, Handsworth, now the Soho Road, and afterwards on the corner of Newall Street and Great Charles Street. Then Van Wart purchased Springfield House in Ickville Street, close to where Springfield Library would be built. That caused a problem. He'd been born just months after the Americans had won independence from Britain, and so was an alien, disbarred from holding freehold property. To overcome this, Van Wart obtained a special act of parliament which naturalised him as a British citizen. Unsurprisingly, his income was gained through trade with his homeland, buying as he did large quantities of Birmingham goods and shipping them to New York. This trade was ended by the War of 1812 and Van Wart's enterprise failed. Not a man to be bowed down, he became a successful factor, selling for commission the products of small and medium-sized manufacturers who could not afford salesmen, catalogues or showrooms. In later years, Van Wart also helped to start the Birmingham Stock Exchange and became a director of the Birmingham Banking Company. By the time that Washington Irving came to Birmingham, the Van Warts were living with their four children in style at Springfield. Their house forever had happy associations for Irving as his English home. The redoubtable castle of Van Tromp, the playful name by which he called his sister's family. His nieces and nephews delighted in his company and he wrote of the happy romps in the evening between dinner and tea time, in the course of which I play the flute and the little girls dance. They are but pygmy performers, yet they dance with inimitable grace and vast goodwill and consider me as the divinest musician in the world. So thank heaven, I have at last found auditors who can appreciate my musical talents. Despite this cheerfulness, Irving was still downhearted about his future. So, one night, Van Wart strove to raise the spirits of his brother-in-law by reminiscing about their childhoods in Irvington on the River Hudson. He rose up memories of strange characters, of queer goings-on, of local stories and of funny incidents and Irving's thoughts turned back to his writing, for in 1809 he had brought out The History of New York by Diedrich Knickerbocker. The urge to take up his pen once again grabbed him. In his bedroom, Irving's thoughts flooded out, almost too fast for him to put them down on paper. The minutes fled by, and when the June sun dawned, Irving had written several chapters of a book. According to Elihu Burritt, later the American consul in Birmingham in the 1860s, Irving entered the breakfast room radiant with the old light of his genius and intellect. He came with his hands full of the sheets he had written while they were all asleep. 
He said it had all come back to him. It was the enchanting world of his childhood, of Sleepy Hollow, that had indeed come back to him. And he read aloud to his enraptured family the first chapters of Rip Van Winkle. Soon after, the Van Warts bought a house on Camden Hill, later to be called Newell Hill, at the corner of Leg Lane and Frederick Street, where I'm standing now. Burrick visited it. By then, it was enclosed in Wiley's gold pen factory and surrounded by Messrs Fowler, Lancaster & Co. electrical engineers. Burrick stood in the breakfast room of the old house and emphasised its importance to Irving's life. He said the sketchbook was born there, although it received some of its developments in other localities, whilst parts of his later novel, Bracebridge Hall, was penned there. This took its inspiration from Aston Hall, features of which were jotted down in Irving's notebook of 1818. He talks about the gateway to Aston Park and of studded nails, squirrel on top of gateway, gateway and porter's lodge sheltered under the trees, church spire rising above, old oak gallery of great extent, figures of knights in armour with banners. Irving went on to travel in Spain and elsewhere, but he continued to visit Henry and Sarah Van Wart. About 1820, they moved from the jewellery quarter to their seventh house in the newly formed Calthorpe Road, close to Five Ways. And the author stays there and recalled in Birmingham in the nearby Washington Street and Irving Street. Henry Van Wart himself was recognised widely as a real gentleman. He took an active part in the public life of Birmingham, becoming a councillor, an alderman and a borough magistrate. His wife died in 1848, but he lived on until he was 90. The Van Warts and their bond with that wonderful, inspirational writer, Washington Irving, should be brought more to mind in Birmingham, the town that they chose as their home. So I've finally come into the Brian Jones room, dedicated to the man whose vision it was to have a pen museum. And it's like an Aladdin's cave. You walk in, open the door, and no wonder first-time visitors go, wow, look at this. Because it's a narrow and short workshop, basically, with big, bright windows on the right, along which are the hand presses that were so vital to making all the pen nibs that came from Birmingham. There are raising tools in a big display box donated by Bacon and Finnamore. There are photographs. There are advertisements on the walls. One's a great one, the boons and blessings. And this was from a company that was called the Waverley Pen. They come as a boon and as a blessing to men, the Pickwick, the Owl and the Waverley Pen. And there's pens galore, pens everywhere. There are ink bottles into which, of course, you had to dip the pen, the steel pen made in Birmingham. There are tins in which pens were kept and I've never seen such an array of pens from cheap ones to expensive ones. This is a most stunning space. I'm really pleased to be joined by Rob Stanyard. Rob's a volunteer here and an expert on the history of pen making. Well the Pen Museum was formed by four people, uh, Colin Joles, Brian Jones, Larry Hanks and Ray Handley and they basically formed the Birmingham Pen Heritage Association. Colin was a collector of pens. Ray, he used to work in the pen trade. Yeah. He worked for British Pens and yeah. he'd been working there since the 1940s. Larry Hanks was a collector. Yeah. And Brian had recently written a book about Josiah Mason. 
who was a great pen manufacturer and benefactor of Birmingham. Exactly, yes. And this dedicated group of volunteers expanded over time. Yep. People like you came in and transformed this space where Henry Van Wart and his wife had lived and Washington Irving had visited into a really atmospheric and evocative museum. Describe for us the room that we're in. In this room, we have a million and a quarter pen nibs. Oh, a million and a quarter. <laughs> they, I mean, some of them are just down here. Ark at that, can you hear that there? There's so many pen nibs. I've dropped some, I'll have to pick them up in a minute, Rob, and that's all right. Yep. And we've got display cabinets galore. Yeah. What they filled with, Rob? Different kinds of pen nibs. There's music ruling nibs, nibs for copper plate writing, Eiffel Tower nibs, tins, which nibs would be put in. Ink bottles. Ink bottles. So, why is the pen museum in the middle of the jewellery quarter? Is there a connection? Oh. Yes, well, Birmingham had 129 pen factories. 129. First pen makers were John Mitchell, his brother William Mitchell, and Joseph Gillett, the factory which is across the road. Which I'm looking at now through the windows of the pen museum. Talk to me about Gillett and his pen making. He started off as a scissor grinder when he was young. He was apprenticed to an early pen maker, John Skinner in Sheffield. And in them days, it was a big job making yeah. pens. We're not talking about bios, we're talking about pen, pen nibs, nibs yes. that went on a piece of stick originally, yep, didn't they? that's right, And yes. you dipped into an ink yep. bottle or yep. an ink well and wrote with. And they used to have to cut out the blanks from great big, big. sheets of metal with shears, didn't shears, they? Shears, yeah, six foot strips of metal, like, yes. And Gillette, uh, he saw how pens was made and then started making Pen nibs in Birmingham. So, Gillett comes to Birmingham, and we'll find out from Colin in a minute how pens were made. But tell me about Joseph Gillett, the man, and how prosperous he became. Well, Gillett became very prosperous. I mean, there's Gillett Road up in Edgebaston that's named after him. There's also Algernon Road, Bernard Road, and Edward Road, which was his son, grandson, and great-grandson. Stanmore Road, which was named after his other estate in Middlesex. He had a huge house in Westbourne Road in Edgebaston. He liked collecting art, so he extended his house. He had five art galleries in it. He owned Turner's Fighting Tamarera. He bought and sold it a couple of times. He once bought Constable's Hayway, put it up in one of his art galleries. Two weeks later, decided he didn't like it, so he sold it for a profit of £200, which in 1860s, like £100,000. So there's this young man who walks to Birmingham from Sheffield yep. just after the Napoleonic Wars. Yep. There's a downturn in trade up there. He ends up, he spends his last eight night on a pie in the bull yep. ring. And then, through hard work, marrying one of the Mitchell yep. sisters, sisters yep. and getting ideas from her, yep. he ends up what we would now call today a multi-millionaire. Multi-millionaire, yeah. He also collected Stradivarius violins, Gennarius violins, and he kept them in the factory across the road. So as we heard from Rob, on one side of the pen room there are display cabinets with ink bottles, tins, ephemera, advertisements, photographs, and of course pen nibs. And on the other side, just a few yards across the way, are lots of hand presses. To tell us more about how these were used, I'm joined by Colin Giles. But before I ask him about the hand presses, Colin, you were one of the pioneers of the Pen Museum. I'm one of the founder members. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did you get involved with collecting pens and why is it such a passion to well, you? Well, my hobby is collecting old irons, as you know. But when I was at school, 52, Alston Road Secondary Modern School, the teacher, Mr Lee, said, best German pens were made in Birmingham. And I never forgot that. So when I run out of information to research for my irons, 
I kept coming across botanic pens in the trademark journals, which started in 1876 and still run today. So I went all through the journals and picked out every pen nib to do with Birmingham. Now we've heard Rob talk about Joseph Gillett. Tell me about some of the other big pen making concerns. Well, there's an argument who's the father of the trade. We say John Mitchell. When uh, Gillett died, they give him all the credits, but then a piece came in Avis's Gazette in the 1870s saying, no, John Mitchell was the person who came up with the invention of press tools for manufacturing steel pen nibs. And we know he started producing them in, in 1822. How did then Mitchell and Gillard transform the making of pen nibs from this very long-winded, laborious, difficult and expensive process into yeah. one that yeah, made that, pens available to yeah, the world? Well, that, that was all individually I made at one time and very expensive, something like a shilling each. Well, with the use of press tools, everyone was identical for that particular type of pen. So where you paid a shilling for one, you could get a gross for 144. Yeah, and that's how it is. The price comes right down, next so to nothing. The hand press was common in Birmingham's smaller metal oh, trades. Yeah, and in the jewellery quarter. It's, it's everywhere, button making and everywhere. But we think that John Mitchell got the idea from the button trade. They were using press tools for knocking out buttons, and he came up with that idea. So we think John Mitchell is the father of the pen trade. So they would take, instead of having to cut out the blanks from sh with shears, mm. they would use the metal and... The press tools. Press the metal yeah, out. Yeah. Press the blank out. Press the blank out. And then they would shape it. Yeah, then they would pierce it. It has to be heat treated along the way. And then it's got to be named, raised, hardened, clean, tempered and put the slit in. Slit is the most important part Why of Why is that? Because when you push down, the slit opens up and the ink flows. It's like a fountain pen really yeah. today. But if the slit's no good, the pen's no good. Colin, the workers, many of them are women? Nearly all women. Why Nearly is that? Nearly all women. Well, women are better with the hands, aren't they, than the men. I don't think they get enough credit for what I've done personally in the pen trade. And I think in the button trade and other trades, Birmingham yeah, yeah, couldn't yeah. have done without women workers. No, I don't think they could have done. Colin, the, the structure of pen factories is quite interesting because they're narrow, aren't they, the rooms? Yeah, yeah, Why is yeah. that? Gillette's across the road, the top floor was always done for slitting because you needed good light. So you have a narrow room yeah, with lots yeah. of windows. Yeah, you can see through that building. So you need good light for when it comes to slitting the pen nib. That slit's got to be in the middle. It's got to be right, and that's it. So the pen trade took off massively. Yeah, 1822. And there's Gillett, there's Mitchell. There's William Mitchell, John Mitchell, and then there was Perry and Co, and Josiah Mason. But in this building was uh, W.E. Wiley. Mm -hmm. He had this factory built 1863, moved out in the 1870s, because when Josiah Mason retired, Perry and Co was formed. So 
W.E. Wiley left his company and he did a lot of work for Perry, so they all moved down to... Lancaster Street. Lancaster Street, yeah. Which but is by the old fire station. Yeah, when he went to Corporate, did it? Yeah. yeah. And then this factory became empty then. But Perry & Co, we think, became the largest pen factory in the world. So Perry & Co, Josiah Mason, like Gillard, a yeah. poor kid. Yeah. He came to Birmingham from Kiddie. Yeah, yeah. So this was an opportunity for entrepreneurs from the working class to get on. It certainly is, because his will was uh, under £250,000. was hell of a lot of money. Who's that, Gillette? Yeah. quarter of a million? Yeah. Multi-millions yeah, in today's yeah. money, wouldn't it? Yeah. What's the importance, do you think, of this museum, Colin? Well, with the closing down of the um, Science Museum, I think it's come more into its own. Because people don't realise what this city produced. Still, Pennibs is only one part of it as you can see. Yeah. But with the coming of the Penny Post, Education Act, people learn to write. I mean, I was reading somewhere last night, if it hadn't been for the steel pen, the Penny Post would never took off. Mm. And you can understand that, can't you? Because everybody then learned to write. And that's the important part, is to learn the world to write. And you can't get better than that, really. You can't call it. For the cheap products and the throwaway products. Rob, come back into us here and just explain to us what happened to the Birmingham pen trade. Well, the invention of the biro, basically, was invented in 1938 by Laszlo Biro. When it first came out, it had cost you a week's wages. It was about £15. But then, 50s and 60s, mass-produced, and it sort of wiped these pen trade out within about five years. Any pen makers left? Only two. Leonard's. They used to be down Charlotte Street, they're now up in Hyley in Shropshire. They moved up there in the 1950s because Hyley's a mining village, so all the men are going out to work and it gave all the women a job. And the only other one, British Pens, they're up in Albury in Tramway, and they're the only two surviving companies. If people want to come and visit this wonderful museum, where is it and what do they have to do? Well, basically, it's in Frederick Street, you just come as you want to, catch the number 101 bus from outside Snowhall Station. It's open every day of the week, 11 till 4 and 1 till 4 on a Sunday. And free entry, but donations entry. welcome. Yep, mm. donations welcome, yes. Well, congratulations to all of you. I'm bringing to the fore into the 21st century the history of mm. all important Birmingham trains. Yeah, yeah. You can hear the pride in the voices of Robin Collin. The pride not only in the pen trade, but also in the manufacturing wares of Birmingham. It's a pride I think that all of us share, and so we should, because Birmingham in the 19th century was a town where metal sang. In every street and every yard, a multitude of smiths collared with hammers and tongs, stamps and presses, draw benches and lays. As they clanged and clashed, they formed the goods which were desired across the world. They took iron and crafted bedsteads. They held brass and fashioned light fittings. They clutched gold and created jewellery. They gripped copper and struck coins. Whatever the metal, the folk of Brom could work it and shape it into a thing of beauty. A skilful people, they were also resourceful, clever and ingenious. Just as their hands were deft, so too were their minds sharp. Continually they searched to find quicker and better ways to make their wares, and increasingly they sought to discover a new manufacture which would have a great impact. 
the inventiveness of Bromwich was renowned. And it is little wonder that the city was alluring to imaginative and adroit people from far and wide. It was to here that came two great Scots, James Watt to develop his steam engine and William Murdoch to realise his dream of lighting the gas given off by burning coal. And to Birmingham came also the Worcestershire lad John Baskerville with his ambition to make a form of type unsurpassed in the world and the American Dr William Church with his idea of chilling castings. There were many more, amongst them those who opened up the art of writing to millions of ordinary men and women. For it was here in Birmingham that writing was indeed democratised. Just think of it, before the steel pen nib came along, how did someone write? They had to have a reed or a goose quill, like Washington Irving, and both of them were expensive to buy and difficult to use. But then along came a group of men who moved on to turn out tens of millions of steel pen nibs each year. They were cheap and easy to handle. Amongst them, as we heard, was Josiah Mason. Then there was Joseph Gillett. And there were a number of Brummies born and bred. We've heard about William and John Mitchell, whose sister Maria married Gillett, but there was also John Heath. There were the Brandowers and others. And in the late 1820s, these men all seemed to be inspired, individually and collectively. And they began to make steel pen nibs with screw presses, as Colin told us, pushing out the shape of a nib from a strip of metal. At first, the process was slow and awkward, but these men kept on devising new ways of making it faster and more dexterous. And their success was spectacular. By the 1870s, they and other local firms were manufacturing upwards, now arc at this, of 20 million pens a week. 20 million pens each week. And at such a low cost, for they were made for as little as three eightpence a gross. That's less than a modern penny. Compared to five bob, 25 pence for 144 a gross in the 1830s. The outstanding popularity of these pens meant regular work for thousands of Brummies. Mason made his pens for a man called James Perry, and at his factory in Lancaster Street, close to the modern Aston University, there were over 1,000 employees, most of whom were women. Like other pen workers, they rolled the steel that was bought from Sheffield, they cut out the blanks and pierced them, slit, raised and shaped them, and stamped, scoured and ground them until they were ready for sale. Marked with the words, made in Birmingham, such pens went out to Britain and Ireland, across Western Europe and throughout North America. Their importance was immense in bringing literacy to the widest number of people and their influence was recognised by Elihu Burritt, the American consul in Birmingham. In 1868, he visited Gillett's factory, the Victoria Works in Graham Street, which dominated the brow of Newall Hill and is across from the Penn Museum. The American was awestruck by the activity, energy and adeptness which he saw there. He exclaimed that Gillett was a pioneer of civilisation. Why? Because in 10,000 schoolhouses scattered over the American continent between the two oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, a million children used the pens made by Birmingham working people and entrepreneurs. Burrick finished off by saying that Gillett's was the great lion of Birmingham manufacturers to Americans visiting the town. Such praise was not exceptional. Our pens were the finest and the best in the world, so there is but little surprise that Birmingham was indeed celebrated as the pen shop of the world. The talents of the pen makers of Birmingham, the gaffers and the workers, are celebrated and brought to the fore in this wonderful pen museum in the Jewelry Quarter. On the site of the house where Washington Irving visited and over the way from the famed Victoria works of Gillett, it is a testament not only to the pen trade but also to the dedication, determination and drive of a group of volunteers who have made this museum one of the finest small museums in the country. It is one which not only looks out to the past but also it's one which reaches out to younger generations and it does so in a thoughtful and imaginative way.
I congratulate all of them here on their achievements and I urge you to visit the Penn Museum. Colchins Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com. Come.